this is about myself and my good friend James talking about the best-selling books on the current business book bestsellers and we're going to inform you what we saw and maybe inspire you to do something different and challenge maybe your business as usual so hi there James how are you very good yeah how are you I'm fine. I'm fine. So we decided, didn't we, a while ago that we were going to talk about something that was congruent with lockdown. And you were quite keen on talking about the idea of resilience. Yeah. How people could build resilience. So we went and had a look around what books were available. And we came up with option B, which is written by Cheryl Sandberg. And who is the, she's the chief operating officer of Facebook and a guy called Adam Grant who is a professor at Wharton University in America. And we know Adam well, don't we, Sean? We do, he, yes. He featured heavily in Deep Work, yes. Cal Newport, which we it, uh, reviewed. Exactly. And I, and I did, yes, it, it only, I think James and I spotted that, but there was a little bit of self-publicism by Adam, I thought, which uh, in the book is yeah. interesting. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. probably, it's probably important at the beginning to contextualize the book for our listeners. People will know, maybe or maybe not, that Cheryl Sandberg's husband um, died in, in a kind of, a, a, he had some kind of heart condition and he died while he was on a treadmill. Fell off a treadmill. When, when they were on holiday, she found him. They had two young children. So it's, it's a very kind of sad and moving story. And, and the book is discussing how she coped in the aftermath of his tragic death yeah it is really it's it's an interesting read both her as the one of the you know most senior people in facebook i think she's worth nearly two billion dollars now having sold her facebook shares and, and her husband was the boss of survey monkey so they were yeah. the silicon valley power couple yeah. and uh, yeah she's very transparent and open about things yeah it's so just the the reason we chose it was for resilience and yeah it it was not maybe quite as we expected James was Mm. it it was a nice book it was a little bit she's quite emotional and wearing a heart on her sleeve and it it wasn't a kind of a book in the same vein that maybe the Cal Cal Newport book you mentioned Mm on deep work and the Matthew Syed book on black box thinking. Yeah. And, it, and it was a kind of autobiographical of her journey yeah. as opposed to helping you in business. There's lots of little nuggets, but they, for me, they were a little bit peppered around the place rather than put in a structured way. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, was, I agree with that, yeah. I yeah. mean, but the book itself, she did 24 pages of bibliography, so it's like some PhD thesis, but yeah. in the actual delivery of it wasn't structured in a organized PhD thesis away. No, you, no. Is that unfair? I, yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, I think if you had been bereaved, I think this would be quite useful. There's some, just, I'd say there's some nuggets in it. Yeah. That are useful, peppered around. But, but like you say, there's a lot of autobiography. There's a lot of tales about other people and the awful tales of grief that they've had. And... Yeah, it, it does move around all over the place, doesn't it? And a bit, yeah, a bit. Considering that she's you know, the boss of Facebook, and I'm sure she's pretty process-driven and organised. Mm. But it, it starts, the, the, you know, a good quote at the beginning, in the introduction, page 10. It says, yeah. resilience is the strength and the speed of a response to adversity. And, yes. we can build, and we can build it. It isn't about having a backbone. 
It's about strengthening the muscles around the backbone. So I thought that was quite a nice description of what resilience is. It's something yeah. we can get better at. We can exercise our resilience muscles. And it gives a few tips throughout the chapters to do yeah. that. It's set, I mean, that's a great setup for the book, isn't it? That's that yeah. And I, I suppose that I felt a little bit let down because I think I thought I was going into something. Yeah. As you say that maybe a journey. Sure. It wasn't like 10 steps to resilience, but at least yeah. something with yeah. a, a, a journey, a start, middle and an end. Yeah. And it was just a bit. It was a bit hazy. I, I like the I liked on page thirteen the the quote that she was talking to her brother-in-law, obviously her dead husband's brother, and he he said to her the reason the book's called Option B. He said Option A is not available, so let's just kick the shit out of Option B. Which yeah, I think, I exactly. You got no choice, and but easier said than done. But okay, yeah. what uh, you got on chapter one then? Well, chapter one on page 16, it talked about recognizing that negative events are personal, pervasive and permanent. Mm. And that can make people less likely to get depressed and be better able to cope. I thought that was good. But rather than just, it was a lot about grief, as you say. Mm. The another bit in chapter one I liked was that it, it says to you, look, okay, people are grieving. Not everyone reading the book might be reading it because they're grieving. But it gave an interesting quote that insurance salespeople who have a lot of doors slammed in their face, if they don't take rejection personally, and remember they could get new prospects tomorrow, they sell twice as much insurance policies and they stay in their job twice as long as their yeah. colleagues that don't do it. So yeah. there's a lot of benefit to resilience, I think is what I got from chapter one. Yeah. And, and just you don't have to be depressed or having a bereavement or anything else to, to benefit from the advice, I would yeah. say. And she mentions these three P's as well, doesn't she? Which I like. She's, she says the three P's are personalization, the belief that we are at fault, pervasiveness, the belief that event will affect all areas of our life, and permanence, the belief that the aftershock of the event will last forever. And what she's saying is you've got to recognize those feelings within yourself and, and move on from that. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So that was chapter one. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of emotion in there. And then chapter two for me was similarly a bit of emotional ether, but the thing she did talk about was kicking the elephant out of the room. Yeah. And obviously when something bad happens, this is more to do with grief or someone who has a terminal illness, no one ever talks about it. Yeah. But obviously everyone, because they're a bit afraid. And I think page 31 and 32, she couldn't understand why friends didn't ask me how I was doing. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it, 33, it then said, it's a doctor's practice had a name for it, the mum effect. You just don't talk about those things. Mm. But she said, look, if you are a way to help people talk about things, is just put it out there. And she posted that she was hurt and upset and sorry about this, but it's just the way it is. And that kind of gave people permission to talk about it. Mm. Mm. So I thought that was quite, it's quite a good little lesson. People probably do want to talk about it, but they feel they might upset you if they do. Yeah. So her point was, when anyone's in a difficult situation, talk about it, because actually people do want to talk about it, yeah. but they might not want to bring it up. She brings, she talks about people who are non-question asking friends, doesn't she? And then she talks about other people who are openers. Yeah. Yeah. And the non-question asking friends obviously don't ask questions, and the openers ask lots of questions and listen to the answers without judging. So I think she found that quite useful, didn't she? Like you say, talking. Anything else from chapter two? Uh, not really. I, I think both one and two I found pretty heavy on yeah. the emphasizing grief. Yeah. Um, it, it almost seemed a bit cathartic, chapter one and chapter two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On her part. Gosh, yes, yeah. 
Okay, so chapter three is the platinum rule of friendship. What, what are you getting in this one, Sean? What did I get? The thing I thought was interesting, which I'm not sure how it translates into the workplace, but it was a, uh, a phenomenon that I think was backed up by psychologists that if you have physical contact with people, it takes away anxiety. Mm. So it was talking about mothers and daughters when they hold hand under stress, okay, sweat yeah. less, and you can wire them up and show them that they are less stressed. Yes. Um, when people are, people can talk a funeral. She could talk at her own eulogy because her sister held her hand. Her husband's eulogy. Wondered, yeah, her husband's eulogy. And, and I just wondered how, and I've got an answer, but I just wondered how could we translate that into the workplace? I'm not sure you could go holding your staff's hands, or maybe you could. <laughs> I was trying to translate it to some practical outcome, and I, I couldn't really get one. It's more of a personal thing, isn't it, rather than a, a work thing, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Can't I mean, it be a work yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it just can't be. There's too many. Yeah. Too many kind too of many lawsuits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's all I got out of chapter three. Really, I don't know if you got anything else. I like the, just at the end, she talks about this thing called ring theory, and she drew four rings. And she on page fifty-two, fifty-three. Yeah. She, I, I, and who who was most affected by his her husband's death in the centre, and then going out from the rings. I think the kids were in the centre ring, then she and husband's uh, mother and his brother were in the second ring, and then his friends and re relations were in the third ring, and then the outer ring was his colleagues and his extended kind of friends as well. And she was saying, you, you've got to ask for help going outwards and give help going in. Yeah. Quite like that. Okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Chapter. I wonder whether you like that because it was a visual, a little lesson yeah, there. Yeah. You know, yeah. We were reading this book and 53, they give a visual and, and you perked up a bit. Lesson uh, there yeah. for management reporting. <laughs> yeah. No, that's very true, that, isn't it? Yeah. It broke it. It was a pattern interrupt, wasn't it? But yeah. You're quite right. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. Chapter so, four. Chapter four um, self compassion and self confidence. Yeah. Coming to grips with ourselves. Mm. What have you got here? Well, there was a few like quite deep and meaningful things. There was a lady who had set up a really successful uh, program helping ex-prisoners. Mm. And then her kind of life fell apart. Her husband left her. And she ended up having a, a relationship with one of the released prisoners who'd done well. Mm. And she got kicked out of a job. It was about people sometimes make mistakes. Recognize a mistake. It's part of being human. And uh, tap into that and you'll recover faster. Yeah. And don't shirk responsibility for your past, but don't beat yourself up so badly that we damage our future. Yeah. And the thing that I got out of it was it says blaming our actions rather than our character allows us okay. to feel guilt instead of shame. Now, she went into a lot of psycho psychology here. Yeah. And I think she brought in, again, prisoners and stuff. And she said, if you were a prisoner that felt shame, mm. you were much more likely, I think 30% more likely to commit repeat offenses than if you felt guilty. She thought yeah, it was getting yeah. quite into deep psychology. Yeah. But it was, yeah, feeling guilty about it and even better writing about it. So but that's the bit I liked on 62. She said, writing can be a powerful tool for learning self-compassion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a big thing we've seen before, isn't it, Jen? Yeah, I mean, it's to me, if you were to speak to someone who's a, a counsellor for people who've got depression and have had a nervous breakdown, that's what they all do. They all keep a journal every day. Mm. Uh, again, a journal is cathartic. 
and, and they said they, there's a lot of health benefits. Your T cell counts are better. Your liver functions better. You've got better antibody response all by keeping a journal for a few minutes a day. Mm. And then I think she went in, I think this was here where they, how, what you put in your journal, but well, just on the self-confidence, let's stick on the self-confidence. She made the happiness, self-confidence is critical to happiness and success. Yeah. And if we don't have self-confidence, we dwell on our flaws. We don't embrace new challenges because we're scared. Yeah. We don't know, learn new skills. And yeah, interesting. So I think that's uh, going off the point a bit here, but that's an interesting thing schools can do to kids. It's not all about getting four A stars. It's about being resilient in the world and mm. having the ability to deal with things. Mm. And I think something we could do with our staff as well, giving them, empower them. Self-confidence is giving people permission. The thing that struck me was if you're not self-confident, you have self-doubt. And obviously Cheryl Sandberg, I might be cynical, but she, if you don't know, she's, she's a big kind of one. She's a big name or influencer in the world of women's champion of yep. uh, women, women working, uh, women yeah. working and all of that. And she's a torchbearer for them. And she talks about women who don't believe themselves, believe in themselves. And it's quite right. And one interesting thing, a friend of mine, pretty successful in business, and she was offered yeah. by the chairman of a British PLC, a big British PLC, to be yeah. the CEO of the company. And she said to the chairman, she says, well, yeah, well, you know, thank you, but I'm not sure I'm ready just yet, yeah. but I'll go and discuss it with my husband and see whether I I'm really should do it or not. And the chairman yeah. said, listen, I'm offering you the job because I know you're fantastic. If I said that to a bloke, he would tell me how amazing I'm going to be as CEO uh, and he's not going to say, well, I'm not sure. I'll go and chat with my wife about it and I'll get yeah. back to you. And, and I just thought that was, uh, I've got a friend who obviously super successful, but even someone super successful like that still has that element of self-doubt, which I thought was uh, an interesting yeah. observation. Yeah. I saw, I saw a thing, an interview with Paul McCartney the, the other day, who still feels imposter syndrome after 50 years. Really? Yeah, yeah. He still sometimes can't believe he's where he is. And yeah. Okay. What else did I get from this one? Um, like, on 63, she said, she mentions labeling negative emotions makes them easy to deal with on the whole okay. kind of thing. I quite like that. That's interesting because yeah. I've seen that with kind of psychological counseling where you name it and then you put it in a box and that's like some sort of psychological removal. I, I, I didn't say that in the book, but... That's what psychologists do, don't they? Put your bad things in a box and then yeah. that takes it away, kind okay. of. So, and at the end of the chapter, she basically says, as I got a farther away from trauma and the newness of life without her husband, I found myself journaling less. And she stops yeah. journaling at the end of the chapter. The, the one other thing I thought on 68, Sorry. which might be useful for people, was rather than just keeping a journal, the psychologist suggested write down things that you've done well each day. Yeah. It sounds a bit, even like I got dressed, that would be a positive in the extreme kind of downness. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence that these little focuses, they're called small wins, and you write them down. Even yeah. if you just do them for three weeks, it has a massive impact on yeah. your self-worth and self-confidence. Yeah. Because you focus on that. So you should focus. So it said, I think what it said was, uh, counting your blessings doesn't boost confidence but counting your contributions can because gratitude's passive and it makes us thankful for what we receive, whereas contributions are active and they build confidence and remind us that we can make a difference. So maybe we should write it down what we've done well 
And yeah, most people who are asked to do this say, goodness me, I wish I'd done that years ago. It makes yeah. me feel so much better. Yeah. So yeah, again, it's looking at the positive. It's all, it's all based on quite well-known psychology, but look, glass half full, glass half empty. It's yeah. look at it that way. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on chapter four? Not really. No, no. okay. So <laughs> chapter five is um, bouncing forward. Yeah. Quite like this. Yeah, I mean, she gave Albert Camus, the French oh, uh, yeah? famous writer, a little quote at the beginning. I, I didn't, it's a bit out of context, but in the depths of winter, I finally learned that within me lay an invincible summer. So a nice way of basically looking on the positive side. He was a great goalkeeper, Albert Camus, apparently. <laughs> was he? Yeah. That's why I love doing these things with you, James. That's a great little <laughs> You gave me something that you, you always know one of Hitler's mates as well. He wasn't a friend of Hitler as well. You're normally quoting no. Hitler somewhere. No. 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 Page 83 was, yeah. she's maybe not quite in the real because she just talks about how she had Malala Yousafzai around for supper, probably yeah. just after she got the Nobel Peace Prize come around for some, I don't know, some nachos. But, but again, uh, she's, she's getting a little bit in there that I don't know. I, I think, that, I'm not sure there was... Did it jar a bit for you, that bit? A little bit. I just thought there was another agenda, a little bit. And sometimes mm. there was a few agendas, I thought, more than just helping people become resilient. But maybe my expectations were wrong, and that's, that I shouldn't make that criticism. Mm. She's, there's a bit of cross-selling there, I would say. Okay. Not just um, about... Yeah. You feel like there's a different agenda, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I, what I liked about this chapter, just to, I know we're dotting around a bit, on 78, going back, she talks about post-traumatic growth and how you can grow after something, you know, bad's happened. And apparently, post-traumatic growth can take five different forms. It's finding personal strength, gaining appreciation, forming deeper relationships, discovering more meaning in life and seeing new possibilities on 79. So I quite like those ideas. And that yeah, was, I suppose. She talks about hope later. Yeah, yeah. And that was more what I wanted from the book. Exactly. Rather than tea with Malala. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just wanted hope to be in one place and I wanted writing journals and comprehensive coverage in another place. It was just it was a bit like blended all into a big mush kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, if that's not too... Yeah. Go on then, so what else have you got? In chapter? The only other thing I thought was, you could, some people, when they, again, it's not, it's more like depression and worry and all of that, which resilience, I suppose, helps overcome. And, what, and she talks about channeling resilience, but I thought it's not really channeling resilience, it's more channeling your, your like, negative thoughts and stuff. And she talks mm. about how people channel it through family and religion. And okay, if you don't have family, if you're not religious, you need to find some way of channeling it. And what some people do is they, they take up meaningful work and apparently that buffers against burnout. Yeah. And you do hear about these people that were like very successful bankers and they are running a homeless project or something. Yeah. And she talks about meaningful work, firefighting, nursing, addiction counselors, kindergarten teachers, things like that, yeah. jobs with purpose. They tend to be more resilient because they can channel their stresses that they're doing good. No, I like that. And that's a good kind of nugget, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's maybe something we can do if we, what, how do we channel this? Let's, yeah, just let's find a way. Okay. Anything else? Chapter five? Not really. Um, okay. Chapter six, taking back joy. Yes. This was, again, quite personal at the beginning because she's talking about, she went to a, some kind of do, I don't know, it was a wedding or something, and she was dancing on the dance floor with, with a, a male friend, a gay male friend. 
and she suddenly burst into tears. Yeah. And, uh, he took her outside and she realized she actually felt happy. The happiness was followed by an immediate flood of guilt. Yeah. Because how yeah. could she be happy after her husband had died? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it's quite deep stuff, really, for us. Sure. I mean, if you were, it's almost you want to write in your will, go out and have a good time, don't you? If, yeah. you, if you rather off is going to die, you don't yeah. want them like moping. That's the last thing. Permission. And without getting too deep, I remember my dad uh, passed away not, and he said to me, don't mourn me, kid. I've had a great life. Mm. You go, and, and it's really, it's quite helpful for me. He said, don't mourn me, kid. I've had a, never been ill in my life. I've got this thing. He had a, like a brain tumor. Mm. Hey, he's, had, he's 80 years old. He's had the best life ever. So mm. don't mourn me, kid, he said. And that's a good thing to say, isn't it, really? We all die in the end. Yeah, don't feel the guilt because it, it, it did hurt her. I liked on, on the bottom of 96, page 96, she says, survivor guilt is a thief of joy. Which I, yeah, 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 good, good, nice quote. Yeah, I like that. To um, be honest, the main thing I picked up was on 103, where, it, again, I, people probably know about this, but I, I do some work with uh, accounting students and who get stressed and stuff like that. And you know, I've done a bit of work with psychologists on it. And when we're stressed, we produce a chemical called cortisol. Yeah. which if, if it builds up too much in our system can actually completely tip us over the edge. And that's how people have nervous breakdowns and a great antidote to cortisol, which you can only apparently get rid of by sweating it out right. is, is endorphins, which are happy chemicals. Yeah. And so they can counteract the cortisol and the way you produce endorphins, one of the easy ways to produce them is exercise. So on 103, right. Talked about how doctors and therapists exercise is the best way to improve yeah. your psychological well-being. Yeah. Which in these maybe dark and interesting times, make going for a walk or a jog or whatever a habit just to, to you know, produce a few endorphins to keep you sane. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important in, in lockdown, isn't it? In, yeah. I mean, that, that was the kind of rationale and reasoning we, we chose this book. And yeah, we did. Didn't we? Enough yeah. out of it. So... I'm looking for snippets that people can use to maybe help themselves if, if they're feeling a bit low or needing a bit of resilience advice. Okay. And I think maybe, maybe we'll try and find another book, which just is a bit more, I think yeah. we struggled a bit, didn't we? Um, I don't know yeah. where lockdown, we, we couldn't get all some of the books we wanted to read because they weren't available. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. So uh, you just building on that on 103, when she, she talked about exercise, she comes, she talks about this concept of flow. Yeah. Which, spoken about before haven't we in terms yeah. of when you're in the flow yeah and, and how to get there which is i think again if you're studying for exams or you're trying to achieve something at work getting in that flow state is is crucial really isn't it? exactly and you that you've got to be self-aware so, so are you a morning person are you an evening person do you do yeah. it after food do, you do it before food yeah. you know and i think as individuals we have to recognize when are we in a state of flow? Because we're not all in the state of flow at the same time. No, I, I, I would have liked to learn more about that. So at the top of 104, she says, flow might sound like a luxury, but after tragedy, it can become essential. So quite. Yeah. Like it's that. just where all of the sirens and that go off and you're just in the zone, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. And you're completely focused and not, not distracted. Yeah. yeah. And it's recognizing when that takes place, I think. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Chapter um, seven. Chapter seven, Raising uh, resilient, resilient Kids. I felt this was like a, quite a clanking of the gears here because it felt to me like it's a slightly different book almost. Yeah, yeah. So I understand why she wrote it and whatever, but it sounded, this feels like that should be another book that. Yeah, 
yeah, and it, it, it wasn't quite dovetailing with the rest, but there were, I, th I quite liked it though. Yeah, I thought it was snippets, page 111. Go on. Talks about one. resilient kids, and it said there's four core beliefs. Yeah. They have control or some control over their lives. Yeah. That they can learn from failure. They matter as human beings, and they have strength to rely on and share. The first one resonated with me in, in that, I suppose it's a slightly strange story, but I do some work with a homeless charity. And right. uh, so I stay overnight with a load of homeless people. I'm the bouncer, really. Huh. Off. And other people cook the meals and all the rest of it. And there's this, like, counselling going on and all of that. But the interesting thing sometimes, I get them a cup of tea. And I bring them a cup. And they're getting a great meal and all the rest of it. And the bloke says, oh, could you put a bit more milk in my tea? I say, yeah, all right then, mate, yeah. And then I bring him his tea back. And he says, oh, could you just give me a little bit more sugar, please? And I'm like, oh, okay, mate, you know, God, you know, I'm helping you out here and you're kind of taking the mickey a bit. But then this person who was director of the, a big charity called St. Mongo's said, yeah. um, actually, these people have no control in their life. Their lives are rubbish. And the fact that they can ask you for a bit more milk or an extra bit of sugar gives them a lot of self-esteem boost. So just don't get annoyed. Think you're actually helping them out. And to me, that dovetails from a business perspective into things like empowerment. If you give your staff, you empower your staff. You don't yeah. tell them to join every single dot, but give them a bit of flex. They're probably going to work hard. I learned from failure is tipping your hat to black box thinking, which we've talked about before. Yeah, yeah. You matter your value to say thank you. So people, when you don't say thank you to people, good job titles, they encourage them to share. It's all like classic management things, but this is how to make a resilient kid. thought it was good. Yeah, which is important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I like that. Okay. Let's just moving on a bit. On one thirteen, she talks about this idea of a growth mindset. Yeah. And developing a growth mindset, which again, I think we've covered in one of our other books. I think um, it was Cal Newport, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a few lessons on how to bring up your kids here, which probably I should read again. <laughs> Almost. But listen closely. People who have resilient kids, listen closely to them, value their ideas, help them create secure strong attachments mm. with others and yeah and those who felt they mattered were less likely to have depression low self-esteem suicidal thoughts and the one thing i liked which i thought again what what a great i was doing some work yesterday with a load of finance business partners and one of them yeah. on the the kind of conference was someone from Handelsbanken in Sweden. Oh, yeah. And that's this kind of award-winning bank that looks at banking yeah. quite differently. Yeah. And her perspective on things and her work behavior was so different from all the other kind of finance people. And I just thought it was quite refreshing what she said. But it quotes in the book about what happens in Danish schools. And they have something called class on time. And what the kids do, they come together, they discuss problems. And this is from six years old till yeah. they're 18. Yeah. And then they discuss their problems and, and they then see whether the classmates can give them guidance, can make a difference. And apparently the children, by doing this, learn empathy. Mm. They hear other people's perspectives. They reflect on their own behavior. And uh, yeah, how do my actions make you feel? Yeah, I thought, wow, teaching a six-year-old, what a great part of schooling that is. Yeah, yeah. I, really I, like be, I, I haven't really worked with many Danish people, but I, I think I'd like to. Hey, they wouldn't give me a bank account, handles banking, so... Wouldn't they? No. <laughs> you know why that has changed, don't you? <laughs> I was trying to rob the place at the time. <laughs> I liked on page 120, I like these little facts you do. She said, kids have more neural plasticity than adults. Yes, they yes. They adapt more easily in the face of stress. Yes. That's, that's a thread, thread through the book, isn't it? That her kids, she's worried about the kids, but actually 
all the kind of re research shows that kids bounce back a lot. Quicker. Yeah. The problem is kids start off great and then they get messed up by life in that they ring a bell and we have to stand up. They ring a bell, we sit down, we get, we, we the whole innovation, there's a lot, I do a bit of stuff on innovation and innovation is often killed by the kind of uh, structured approach we make people live within. When kids are not born into that, we create that. We create all those barriers and rules and norms and, you know, embarrassments and all of that. And that's, yeah, there's a great, I love that film, Big, where Tom Hanks becomes oh, yeah. a man from, he's actually a seven-year-old man's body. And he's in a product development meeting and he says it, it's if someone comes up with this like transformer toy building, turning into a monster. And he, this like Harvard MBA marketing director is thinking it's great. And Tom Hanks is a, is a, is a man, but a seven-year-old really within the body says, I don't get it. And they're all like absolutely aghast that he challenged the marketing director. But it was a pretty rubbish idea, but no one actually said so. And that's right. what kids do. Yeah. It's refreshing. Yeah. 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 Sorry, a bit that. off on the no. Yeah, it was, it, it was good. I just would have liked, maybe it's me being lazy. I, I think people might not right. read the book in one session. Again, I just would have liked this. This is each chapter. This is what I'm going to say. Say it. And then this mm. is what I've just said. Mm. And then some great referencing at the back. If you read the bibliography, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't get, I didn't get it in the reading of the main book. Okay. So that's all I'd say. Um, all right. Chapter eight. Did, I, I, now I woke up on chapter eight because it was, yeah. It, you, know what, you know what it reminded me of? Go on. It, uh, Matthew Syed. Yeah. That kind yeah. of writing, wasn't it? It's just because it's a story. Yeah, about yeah. the plane crash in the Andes. And, and, and that's a great way of communicating when you're in business. My main one's with finance, but making, making your finance results become a story yeah. because then people connect and engage. Yeah. And uh, Matthew Side did that really well. His whole book was written like a novel, but mm. beneath that surface, there were some really great messages. And mm. chapter eight was the first time I woke up a little bit, if that's not mm. rude. And it talks about the plane crash, which I remember because there was a film on it, but I can't really remember the film. But it was 1972, a plane flying from Uruguay to Chile crashed in the Andes and it split yeah. in half and then rolled down a snowy slope. And there were 33 survivors. Yeah. They were then, they were on an avalanche, snowy, you know, frostbitten mountain for 72 days, yeah. starving. Yeah. Only six of them made it out. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I hope we're now going to get really stuck in to psychological analytics, what went on, the dynamics, how they mm. did it, who, who lived, who died, and why. Mm. And they gave a bit on it, but they gave two pages on it. I was, I was really excited for a couple of pages, potentially. Read, read the wrong book, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. There, were four, there was 45 people on board. Most of them were rugby players in their teens and early 20s. They were going to, and it was interestingly, I think the, the plane radio wouldn't accept outgoing calls, but they were getting ingoing calls. Yeah. And so I think for the first nine days, they were all to be rescued. And then a few of them heard on the radio that yeah. the search had been called off. Yeah. And the team captain said, oh, we don't tell anyone because then they'll lose hope. Mm. But I thought another person gave a much better message and he says, fantastic news. Now we're going to get out of here on our own. We're not going to rely on someone else. We're going to yeah. be you know, resilient and rely yeah. on ourselves. Yeah. And then I think, 128, 129, it talked about hope and the fact that they could rely on themselves and, the sh you know, shared identity and stuff. Yeah. That kind of got them going. And that, that yeah, yeah that's what I like that bit.
And just it's 16 of them did get out in the end, didn't they, Sean? 16, no, they didn't. But the ones that did get out, were, what they did was they all talked about what they would do. Each night, survivors looked at the moon, imagined they're going to be back with their families. One's going to set up a restaurant. Another's mm. going to become a farmer. Mm. So they kept the faith kind of thing. It's a bit like the old Henry Ford, whether you believe it or you disbelieve it, it's probably true. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of power of positive thinking, if that's yeah. not corny. Yeah. It's like the, it's the chimp paradox thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then three of them believe they're going to get out of here. So they went off on a, a treacherous trek. Uh, they almost died, but found the plane tail and it had some like airline insulation in it. And they, they used that as like a sleeping bag. And they survived there for 10 days and they spotted a bloke on a horseback and uh, told him what had gone on. A helicopter picked them all up. They're all, all and then they, they kept together for, the, for decades. When yeah. was it first happened? It was, that was 1972, wasn't 1972, it? 1972, so in 2010, yeah. they actually went to help those Chilean miners. I don't know if you recall. Yeah. There was a load of miners trapped down a mine, and then they had to dig a new shaft, didn't they, and put yeah. like a, a capsule and get them out one at a time through this yeah. like tiny little manhole 500 feet down. And yeah. the blokes that survived the plane accident were talking. They flew in from Uruguay to Chile, talking to the miners and, and it helped them remain resilient. Yeah. I thought that was great. That was a great yeah. story. I just yeah. wanted more of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think we like those kind of stories a bit more, don't we? Yeah. 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 And uh, to be honest I mean, with you, and that was quite a hopeful story, wasn't it? A lot of the other stories. Yeah, it was. Whose mothers died or something. So, yeah. I, I know. The, the fact is, I just think it's a good kind of example of you stories to communicate because yeah. people remember stories. Yeah. People don't remember boring facts. No, no, no. You've got to, what is your objective? You're getting a message across. And that's what she's trying to get. And I just got some of the message. It wasn't interesting. Yeah, if yeah. that doesn't sound uncompassionate. Yeah. I was compassionate to her. Then I thought, hang on a minute. You're selling your foundation here or you're selling your lean in here a bit. And then you're peppering it with, feel yeah. sorry for me. Maybe I'm a bit hard. You are a bit cynical. Aren't you? <laughs> for me though, this chapter, the whole chapter kind of hinges on 130 when she says resilience is not just built in individuals, yeah. it's built amongst individuals. And I think that's the point she's trying to basically. Yeah, no, no, that was good. I got that point. Collective we, resilience. From a shared experience, isn't it? Yeah. Chaps, I think. Actually, there was one, yeah, the, the other thing I liked was, so the collective resilience, she, she then reversed that around. And again, it was probably talking a little bit about our oh, women foundation thing. Yeah. But I thought it was a really good observation. I thought it was shocking, actually, because uh, it's, it's backed up with evidence. And she talked about unfair stereotyping, and she talked about research in the States that there's a perception that girls aren't as good at maths as yeah. boys. Yeah. And if you tell college students about their gender before they take a maths test, they perform 43% worse than men, the girls, that is. Really? But when you call it a problem-solving test, there's no difference. I couldn't believe that, really. Yeah. But, and what, what it said, obviously, there is some, if you look in the bibliography, there is some uh, backup for it. And they call it the stereotype threat. And that it's the fear of being reduced to a negative stereotype. Yeah. And that fear becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the anxiety disrupts our thinking and, and causes it to conform to the stereotype. And it said it's not only in sex, it undermines people of different races, religions, genders, mm. sexual orientations and backgrounds. Mm. I thought, oh, my God, we need to do something about this. Yeah. If it's not bad. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's terrible. 
It is um, perpetuating the stereotype. Yeah. But it is true in my world, working with finance teams, people all think finance are boring. And yeah. I often say to finance teams, you're not starting from a level playing field here. People think yeah. you're boring yeah. Yeah. and you've got to do something that makes you seem less boring. Just address to, it. Yeah. yeah. Just cause that's how you're perceived, whether you yeah. like it or not. Yeah. And then it drifted a bit. Mm. Uh, talked about women and empowerment and why not just put an advert in between the pages a bit for your old other book okay well, yeah let's, let's move on then chapter yeah. nine this chapter is my nine. favorite this is my favorite one <laughs> failing and learning at work she starts chapter nine when she's um again it's a bit is she's named you do yeah she's name dropping again she gets invited to spacex launch by elon musk yeah I think, I think we all know anyway this rocket takes off and it comes back again and it's all successful and she's, but, but Elon Musk had had a lot of crashes before that. And on 144, she says, not only do we learn more from failure than success, we learn more from bigger failures because we scrutinize them more closely. And that, that really chimed in with me. I think that's yeah, very, yeah. very true. And I liked the bit, bit just a little bit below that. She said uh, there had been a previous rocket crash and Elon Musk had asked for the top 10 risks. And, and then there was another launch and the rocket crashed and it turned out, it crashed because of the 11th risk. So yeah. you should have asked for more risks. Yeah, I liked it. There was some... Uh, no, I liked the chapter as well. Yeah. Um, I liked the, uh, on page 145, she says, the majority of regrets are about failures to act, not actions that fail. Yes. So I really like that as well. No, I liked it. And then she, again, I quite like the fact that she then followed that through. Yeah. And she talks about what her mother used to say to it. And she said, you regret things you don't do not yeah. the thing you do. Yeah. Uh, so take a risk and learn from the failure. Yeah. Don't, don't not do it because it might. Yeah, I, I was a big, I thought there was a bit of a, a hat tipping again to black box thinking that resilient organizations creates a culture to, for people to acknowledge mistakes and then have a look at it. And uh, I thought, I really, I thought it was really interesting actually, if there's any people in small growth businesses listening and what you could do. And Facebook, it's a young company, and yeah. it goes on a yearly visit to an organization that has proven staying power. So it obviously yeah. goes to businesses that have been around. And one of them they went to was the Marine Corps. And they actually went through like initial Marine Corps training. And it was interesting how they worked. So when they do an operation in the Marine Corps, and obviously the, the Facebook execs did, and they failed in every one of them. But after yeah. all their failures, there was a massive debrief, like a whole day black box thinking debrief. Yeah. Um, of what went wrong and how it won't happen again. Yeah. I thought I was good. Yeah, no, I like that as well. I, I, and this is where I was a bit cynical because I think on 148, it then talks oh. about this brilliant professor, Harvard, Wharton's top professor, because he does lots of God. feedback and asks for all his mistakes off his students. Yeah. And it sounds great when you realize that the top professor is actually one of the authors of the book. Yeah, Adam Grant. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought, yeah, let's mm. blow a bit of smoke, mate. Yeah. I've seen quite a few speaking coaches and a lot of them say, don't ask for feedback because yeah. your audience is not necessarily doing the thing, you know, interested in the thing that you are. So uh, in particular, there's a guy I like in America called Dan Kennedy yeah. who, who sells, sells from the stage and, and he doesn't mind if he does the worst presentation ever, as long as he sells something at the end of the presentation. So his whole presentation is set up to bludgeon people over the head and to hack off half the audience. He knows that. He just wants half the audience to really like him and buy. And he never collects any feedback because he knows he's going to really hack them off 
Isn't that a bit arrogant, maybe? Because if he got feedback, couldn't he maybe sell to three quarters of the audience? And there would, because what he's saying is his, that they would never recognise what his objective was. So he only wants to think about or be judged on what his objective is, and half of them don't even realise they're there to be sold to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What else did I get from that? I think that was it. Pretty much it then. I think 51, and this is your feedback, it's kind of criticizing Dan Kenny, who's a pretty successful guy. Uh, And he says, accepting feedback is easier when you don't take it personally and be open to criticism. Yeah. When you're open to criticism, people are then more confident to give you feedback, which makes you better. And and a sign of resilience is, hey, and that's linked to the black box thinking about a speak up culture. And in, in that environment, we'll find out problems quicker and solve them quicker. And then if you are feeling down, there was a nice quote about some guy walking with his dad and his brother and yeah. they were mowed down by a car. <laughs> and I think he, his, one, his brother died. His dad was, well, I don't know what happened to his dad. I can't remember. But ever since, this guy's been quite successful and taken risks. And he would say, is anyone going to die here? No, come on, let's do it. And we just had a kind of positive go for it attitude. And I just, uh, maybe it's just me, but that I, bit, still, I, I just don't want to re- read stories like that. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I hope it's true as well. I hope it's not just some mushy story. To... I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, but then again, that, that's what we're saying. Maybe we're not the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Is, is she writing this to bereave spouses, mainly yeah. women, because she's yeah. got a big woman following? If that's. Yeah. Okay. okay. Go on then. So chapter to... 10 to love and laugh again. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, all, it's all nice. But yeah, I, I was reading a book on resilience. I, yeah, it talks about her finding love again. And I, I, yeah, great. Good luck to you. The, one, the only thing I got out of this chapter, which again links into stuff I've read on psychology and people who are you know, depressed and stuff like that, yeah. is that people who are resilient are, use a lot of humor. And it talked about surgery patients who watch comedy yeah. Yeah. request yeah. 25% less pain medication yeah. Soldiers who make jokes deal better with post-traumatic stress. Yeah. People who laugh naturally six months after losing a spouse cope better. Yeah. People who laugh together are more likely to stay married. People, physiologically, their heart rate is lower. Their muscles are, are more relaxed. And the laughter breaks tension by... And I, I didn't mention it in the book, but again, there is a bit of science there because I think when we laugh, we produce endorphins which yeah. are the, exactly the same things we produce when we exercise. Yeah. There's a message. He didn't really, I would have liked it to spell that out so people can get something from it. But the whole point of laughing is you produce endorphins. It, it helps make you feel better. It helps you deal with stress, which is all linked to resilience. But she, she didn't say it. And I, I just, we were saying it, but I think mm. the audience who are reading this book might have got some benefit from talking about that. Yeah. I just, I, I can't help feeling that we're, maybe we're, we're a bit... Middle-aged and cynical, and men, obviously, and maybe it's it's just not written for us, and why, and that's why it's not chiming in with us. And maybe some people might take a lot of hope from it. The cynical side of me at the end as well. The last kind of page is actually invites you to go to a website, yeah, and yeah. it can connects the option B organisation. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I'm I wouldn't have been surprised if there's a big QR code for you to scan that takes you straight through. It takes your bank account. Maybe I'm a bit cynical. No. Okay. All I right. just thought so, it, was a, it was a very emotional thing, which kind of, there was just a bit of cross-selling in there. And yeah, I, I'm yeah. not sure that was a platform to cross-sell. Okay. 
it's not always going to work, is it? We're going to, we are going to choose books that don't chime in with us, which is good, because then, then we can find the stuff that we, we think is useful. Yeah, so. there was some useful stuff in there. We just had, we just had to mine it a bit. Yeah. It wasn't put on a plate for us just to, to digest. There you go. Listen, good talk to you, Sean. Yeah, thanks, James. As <laughs> always, interesting. Yeah, I, I learned something. What, was you, who, what were you telling me? You were telling about Albert Camus. There you go. But just as a final thought, tell me about Albert Camus again. He was I think, a, I th- I think he was a great goalkeeper, I think. Great goalkeeper. Are you Go-keepers. sure about that? Did he even play football when he was born? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. See you next time, James. Cheers. Cheers. All the best. <laughs>